will fight against them and be victorious. He will all he will also seize their gods, their metal images and their valuable articles of silver and gold and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on a irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. The king of the south will march out in a rage and fight against the king of north who will raise a large army but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of south will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands. Yet he will not Good morning. Okay, let me just uh, test Abhijit's technical skills. <laughs> one second, one second, one second. Hello. Yeah, thank you. All right. Good morning once again. Um, can you all smile at me, please? Why are you all so serious? Is it the seriousness of the passage? <laughs> How many of you understood the passage? None of you. Okay. That uh, puts a big burden on me. <laughs> all right. No problem. Uh, we, this is still the word of God, and we need to deal with tough passages. This is a lot of history in it, and uh, when you come to think of it and see its fulfillment, there were about 100 or more than 100 specific detailed fulfillments of this particular prophecy. In fact, this is one of the most detailed of prophecies that we have in the Old Testament. So please listen to me attentively. We'll go slow. We'll go step by step, word by word, and you will see the marvel of how God ordains things in history and how he brings his plan to fruition. All right? Okay. So uh, Prithvi cracked the joke for me. I don't need to go with go again with another joke. Uh, he said these are the days of studying the book of Daniel. I'm not sure what it means, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, we'll go with that. Chuck Swindoll in his book, uh, Growing Stronger, tells the story of a particular Christian who was providentially saved from death. He was about to take a flight uh, 119 from New York City, uh, and because of some delay in New York City, he got delayed, and he didn't board the plane, which went on to crash with all the 254 people on board, and all of them died. So this particular incident of God's providence and providentially saving a particular Christian was published in a magazine. And one of the readers of that magazine who read this particular article wrote back to the editor, and he said this, I just had to let you know about one of God's great saints who ran to make the same flight and made it. His name was Edward C. Elliott, beloved pastor of the Garden Grove Orthodox Presbyterian Church in California. He said he was supposed to go to California from the same airport, Chicago. In fact, 
His plane from Pennsylvania got late, and so the friend who accompanied him saw him just jutting and rushing. And as he rushed, he just made it to the plane before it took off, and he went on to die in a crash. And when people read about this particular story again, there was a lot of questions that were raised in the minds of people, particularly when they read about the fruitful ministry of this pastor. And the question that was raised with urgency was this. Was divine providence only operating in New York and not in Chicago? God saved one Christian, but not the other pastor. So the question, obviously, that was raised with urgency was, was divine providence or God's sovereignty only in working in one particular place, which is New York, and not in Chicago? Not a simple question, especially when you're emotionally involved in it, especially if you're a member of his church under whose preaching you would have sat for many years. A story like this raises some pertinent questions. And the questions are, if God is in control of everything, why do bad things happen to good people or supposedly good people? If God is in control of everything, why do bad things happen to good people? By the, by the way, I need to check. Can you hear me at the back, please? All right, thank you. Or a better question. How does the sovereignty of God impact my everyday life? How does God's providential care or God's providence or God's sovereignty impact my everyday life as I live out my life here in the city of Bangalore? Or better... Can we understand how the Lord's sovereignty works? At least as much as we can understand in terms of our human capacity from what has been revealed in the word. And thankfully, all these questions are all answered in the word of God, particularly in this passage that was read out to us from Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 20. Now, Daniel had been faithfully and fervently praying for the kingdom of God to come, for God's promises to be fulfilled in his own life, for his people to be taken back from captivity, back to their land. And as Daniel was revealed that that particular fulfillment of people going back and God's kingdom coming would not happen in his own lifetime in terms of the complete fulfillment, Daniel, in chapter 10, was given a vision of the glorified Christ. Remember, last time when I spoke, we talked about it. He saw a vision of the glorified Christ. And in chapter 11, he is given a detailed prophecy. And in chapter 12, he is also given the culmination of detailed prophecy about what would happen to God's people and how the kingdom of Christ will come as a culmination and he would establish an everlasting kingdom. So Daniel was given this entire panorama of history right from his day until eternity when Christ would come and set up the kingdom. You know why Daniel was given all of these things? At least for personal reasons, because Daniel was near his death. And he wasn't seeing the culmination or the fulfillment of the kingdom of God coming in his own life. And so I think for his hope to be made sure, God gave these three passages And these are tough passages. We must study them as well. One more introductory comment, or a couple of more introductory comments, before we get into the passage on hand. Chapter 10, if you remember, it focuses completely on the spiritual warfare in the heavenlies. It's about good angels and bad angels battling it out to fulfill the 
the purpose of God, to fulfill the sovereignty of God or the will of God. But chapter 11 here dwells completely on the earthly things, human struggles occurring between men, occurring between kingdoms, occurring between people bloodthirsty for power. And you see kings waging war against, wars against each other. And we also see that that spiritual warfare that we saw in chapter 10 has a direct bearing on the wars that are happening here on earth. So chapter 10, as it opened our eyes to the spiritual warfare, we see that it has a direct bearing on the affairs of this world. So Israel, we see, is not only impacted by the spiritual warfare that's happening between good and bad angels, Israel is also affected by the struggles of earthly kings because God put Israel right in the middle of two big powers, Syria and Egypt, that we're going to study about. So today's passage will reveal to us two things that you and I need to understand. Two things that you and I need to understand about God's sovereignty over the affairs of this world. God's sovereignty over the affairs of this world. How he brings his plans to work out in future. How he brings his purposes to fruition in this world. There are two things, two very simple things. And since the passage is tough, I've kept the applications very, very simple. So please follow along. And we'll go slow and step by step as well. So in verses 1 through 4, in verses 1 through 4, we see that the Lord achieves his will, determined before time began, often through the rebellious acts of men. Did you hear that? God or the Lord achieves his will, determined before time began, often through the rebellious acts of men. Kings assert themselves, they seek their own interests, they sometimes oppose God and God's people, while in the midst of it all, in doing all of these sinful things, these kings are actually fulfilling the purposes of God. And that's exactly the message that the angel gave Daniel. Daniel was told in advance that Israel would be ruled by Persia and the Hellenistic Empire, which is the, the kingdom of Greece, to highlight God's sovereignty over nations. And the specifics are given in two steps. We'll go step by step. The first one. Israel's history under Persia would span four kings, or four more kings, the fourth being Xerxes, who would fight against Greece. Look at verses 1 and 2, please, now. And as for me, this is the angel talking, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, also called Cyrus, most scholars agree that uh, the, the king that is talked about here is Cyrus. It is a little confusing, but, uh, uh, but when I looked at it, they were talking about Cyrus. I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. A fourth shall be a far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece." If you remember, these are the visions that were given to Daniel, or Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel both. In chapter 2, it was the vision of a huge statue that had four metals. Uh, the metals were gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and feet of iron and clay. And then in chapter 7, there was uh, animals that was given, winged lion, lopsided bear, and then you have the winged leopard and the unique beast. But all of a sudden, in chapter 8... It focused on two kingdoms in particular. And one was ram and the other one was goat. Two animals again. 
So we know that the first line represented the kingdom of Babylon or Neo-Babylon. The second one represents the kingdom of Medo-Persia. The third one, Greece. And the fourth one, Rome. Here in this particular passage, in Daniel chapter 11, these two empires, which is the kingdom of Persia and Greece, are of a particular interest. However, this time, they don't get one whole chapter, but they're only given four verses in this particular passage. So Daniel chapter 11 verse 1 is a hinge verse that connects chapter 10 with chapter 11. The angel of chapter 10 that we were talking about last time, he comes and informs Daniel that when he came on the scene, he came to assist Cyrus or Darius. How did he assist Cyrus or Darius? We know from history that when uh, Cyrus took over the throne in about 539 BC, right after he took over the throne, he issued a decree in 538 BC that all of the Israelites who had been deported from Israel or Judah could go back. And he even gave a command that they could go back and build, uh, rebuild uh, the, city, the city of Jerusalem as well as the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this happened two years before this particular vision had, uh, had been given, the vision that we are talking about. And what the angel is talking about here is perhaps that the angel's ministry assisted Darius in giving that decree to send God's people back to Judah to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple as well. You see... I began by saying that the heavenly realms, the fights that are happening, the battles, do have a consequence right here on earth. And the angel is saying that I've been assisting Darius, I've been assisting Cyrus, and because of the ministry of the angel in assisting Darius, he sent out a decree that God's people would go back to Jerusalem, and God's people ought to build the temple and the city of Jerusalem. Now, verse 2 begins a lengthy lesson in history. And please concentrate, we'll go step by step, but it is a lot of information. You see the specifics to the detail that God gives in prophecy and how they were fulfilled in history. Before the, angels begin, the angel begins the history lesson, he also gives a divine affirmation as well. He says, now I will tell you the truth, verse 2. Now I will tell you the truth. And he says, following Darius, which is Cyrus, three more kings will arise in Persia. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and history records that these three kings were Cambyses, number one, number two, Smerdis, and number three, Darius I. But all those are insignificant detail to, details to us, but the, uh, the angel also said there'll be a fourth one who will arise, who will be richer than all of them. And guess who that is? His name is Xerxes. He's also called in the Bible Ahasuerus who was the king of Persia when Esther was the queen there. So this man, Xerxes I, or Ahasuerus, he gained a lot of money, a lot of wealth, and he gained a lot of territory as well. And all of a sudden, he went to invade the kingdom of Greece. That's exactly what is mentioned in verse 2. So he goes to invade the kingdom of Greece in a battle called the Battle of Salamis in about 480 BC. And he gets thoroughly defeated. Now, this is happening. This particular battle is happening between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. And he gets defeated, and with that, we are done with Persia. 
God used Persia. God raised a Persia for a particular reason. And the reason why God raised a Persia was to send a decree through the king of Persia to send God's people back to their land. And now we are done with Persia. You put it back in the dustbin of history. God's sovereignty reigns. Now you go to the next kingdom. Second one. Alexander the Great would rule with great power and then have his kingdom divided into four empires. Verses 3 and 4, let me read them for you. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he he has arisen, a kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides him. Now, there's a 150-year gap between verse 2 and verse 3. What happened then is not important to God. But what's going to happen now in verse 3 is what God is highlighting here. All scholars agree that the mighty king that verse 3 talks about, or the warrior king that verse 3 talks about, is Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great was a great king, and historians have written volumes about him, in fact. But God just gives him one verse. Historians have written volumes. God gives him one verse. And, but the fact of the matter is he was a very powerful king. He conquered much of the then known world. If you look at this, he conquered right from Macedonia here, right up to India. You see the Indus Valley. Uh, all of this was conquered by Alexander the Great within a span of five years. His army was tired fighting battles, but he was fierce. He was strident. He would go on conquering, and he was one of the finest Uh, warriors in the entire history of the world. But whatever he did, he died at the age of 33. And Alexander's sons were murdered as well. His uncle was murdered. No descendants were there to take over his kingdom. And following his death, four of his generals took over his kingdom. And those generals were Cassander took Macedonia and Greece. And Lysimachus took Thrace and portions of Asia Minor. And Ptolemy here took Egypt and other parts of it, even Israel as well. Here is Israel. And then Seleucus, the king of the north, took Syria and Mesopotamia. This is how four kings or four generals of his took and divided his particular kingdom. But as this verse says, none of them measured up to the power that Alexander had. Alexander wielded a lot of power, and these were no match to their a king who had just died. Now God plucked Alexander's kingdom out of his hand and he gave them to four generals. And Alexander served God's purpose and he's out of the scene as well. God sovereignly runs history that way. God sovereignly runs history that way to fulfill his own purposes. Do you rest in the sovereignty of God? Do I rest in God's sovereignty? Let me read for you a couple of verses from the Bible to talk about God's sovereignty and apply it to our lives. Psalm 115 verse 3 says this, Our God is in the heavens and he does, can you finish the sentence? Whatever pleases him. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever pleases him. Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, And there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times things not yet done. 
saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Job 42 verse 2. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. But the fact of the matter is, although we know all these verses, and some of us have been raised with these verses, some of us have been hearing the concept of the sovereignty of God again and again, and I have been studying the concept of the sovereignty of God again and again over several years now, the fact of the matter is, you and I are quite capable of fretting and lamenting how things can go out of control. But you know what? Nothing could be further from truth. Because nothing can go out of God's control. There is nothing in this world, in this entire universe, that can ever go out of the sovereignty of God or out of his control. R.C. Sproul, who recently passed away, had a beautiful way of saying it. He said, or he used to say, there is no maverick molecule. Not even the smallest of hydrogen atoms can ever go out of the sovereignty of God. He is that sovereign. He exercises sovereignty on every aspect. You may not always see God's hand. You may not always discern his heart or like his ways, but you and I must understand this, that he is God and there is no other. We are not our own gods. We are not the gods of our lives. He is God and there is no other. So his word that I just read for us from three men who were talking about God's sovereignty, uh, Job talked about it, David talked about it, Isaiah talked about it. These are men who understood the sovereignty of God. He was sovereign over King David's challenge rule. He was sovereign over King David's crazy family. He was sovereign over King David's personal failures. And yet, King David talked about the sovereignty of God, and he said, the Lord does whatever pleases him on earth. Isaiah was given a ministry, a ministry that included promises of proclamation to people. He didn't understand all of it. He had a very tough ministry, and yet Isaiah went and told and proclaimed to the people that there is only one God, and there is no other. Job had his own personal struggles. He had to go through a lot physically. He had his children dying. He had all of his property taken away in one instance. But all of a sudden, he realizes that it is under the complete control and sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. There is only one, and he is one God, and there is none, and we are not gods ourselves. We are not gods ourselves. So you and I ought to trust God with however he chooses to write your story and my story. We ought to trust God with however he chooses to write your story and my story. He gives and he takes away, but always ever to bring glory to himself. And not just that, he gives and he takes away for our good and for his glory as well. He works all things for his glory and for our good. No exceptions. He wounds, but ultimately it is to heal. He enriches, ultimately it is to make us generous. And when he wants, when he waits, it is not to frustrate you, but to concentrate you for bigger purposes that God has for your life and my life. And that is the sovereignty of God. That is the sovereignty of God. So this morning, as we listen to his word, let's renew our thinking. Let's make our hearts gentle and let's deepen our worship. Once again, may I remind you, in this season of life, you and I must remind ourselves, as in every other season, that he is God and we are not. He is God and we are not. He is sovereign 
over our lives. A very serious application, but let me just bring this to a close with a story that you'll be thrilled by. It really ministered to my heart, and I'm sure it will to yours as well. In 1945, a young associate pastor by the name of Cliff married a girl by the name of Billy. And both of them, they were in ministry, they didn't have much money, and so they wanted to go for a honeymoon, and they somehow tried to plan a good honeymoon. That didn't happen, so they somehow scraped uh, all of their money that they had, and um, they thought they would take a honeymoon. They hadn't booked a hotel. It was 1945, no online bookings in those days. And so they went to a particular hotel by evening, and they said, we need a room for a honeymoon for a couple. And the hotel manager who was at the reception, he said, well, this was a hotel, this used to be a hotel, but we recently turned this into a rehabilitation center. And so we don't have any space for overnight guests. They stepped out. They didn't have any money for taxi, so they hitchhiked a ride to a particular nearby grocery store. They went and shared their story with the grocery store manager, and the manager said, well, since you've come long distance, I have a room uh, on the top floor. You can stay there for tonight. But later on, as he was carrying the luggage upstairs, uh, there he comes to find out that they're both believers in Christ. And so the hotel manager says, sorry, the grocery store manager says, well, I have a friend in this town who's also a believer in Christ, so if he finds out that you're believers in Christ too, he might give you some space for a week. So he calls up the other man, and the man was glad to take these people in, and these two people were taken in to their room, and they thought they would spend their honeymoon in that particular believer's house. Halfway through the week, The man says, there's a conference going on in the conference hall here. Would you please accompany us? And they both were glad. They both went to that conference, and the choir director of that particular choir was sick that day. Cliff had a good voice, so he was asked to lead the choir. And after Cliff leads the choir, there was a young preacher by the name of Billy who stands up to share the gospel. That was the day Cliff Barrows and Billy Graham met to continue their ministry for the next 50 years. Accidents, setbacks, nothing under the sovereignty of God. He has a plan for every single setback. If God could do that for Billy Graham and Cliff Barris and bring them together, one man preached the gospel, the other man sang for the rest of his life. Both of them ministered around the world. We know the story. The rest is history. God's sovereignty. There are no setbacks in our lives. He has a sovereign hand upon us. My question is this morning, As I ask myself, I ask you as well, do you rest in God's sovereignty over everything? Do you rest in God's sovereignty over everything? So in verses 1 through 4, we saw that God, the Lord, achieves his will, determined beforehand, often through the rebellious acts of men. Then there's a second thing that you and I must understand about the Lord's sovereignty and his sovereignty over the affairs of this world. And that is in verses 5 through 20. They say that the Lord often places his people in the midst of trials to purge and purify them. The Lord often places his people. He often plants his people in the midst of struggle, in the midst of trouble, to refine and purify them. He often providentially plants you and me in the middle of hardships only to cleanse and refine us. That's precisely what we learn from the rest of the vision until verse 20. Daniel was revealed that Israel would find itself caught 
in the midst of the struggle between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And we see that in two parts. This is a long story. Uh, please uh, follow along with me. It's a very interesting story about what happened in history. So please follow along. Look at the first thing that we read about here. The Ptolemies and the Seleucids would end up in war with each other in spite of attempts to form an alliance. Verses 5 through 12, but I'll go verse by verse. Please follow along. Actually, verses 5 through 12 talk about the Ptolemies or the Egyptian dominance. Look at verse 5 here. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger and he shall rule and his authority shall be a great authority. Now we saw that uh, Alexander's kingdom was divided into four. The angel now is concentrating on two particular kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is the king of the uh, north, which is the Seleucid Empire, and the southern kingdom, which is the Ptolemaic Empire. Why is it called the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom? This is in reference to Israel here. This is to the north of Israel, and this is to the south of Israel. And so God is concentrating particularly on Israel, about his people, the future of his people, what they would go through. And so he is talking of this as the northern king and the southern king. So this is the Seleucid Empire, this is the Ptolemaic Empire, and the rest of the vision, or the rest of the uh, vision till verse 20, is about them. Look at what verse 5 says. He says, the king of the south, the angel says the king of the south. Now, by the way, just for reference, uh, these are all the kings who succeeded one another in the, in the northern part, which is Syria, the Seleucids. And these are all the kings of the south. We'll go step by step and we'll see that each king had a part to play. Now, this is the Ptolemies, the, the kings of the south. The Seleucid Empire, north, and the Ptolemaic Empire, south. Verse 5 again. The king of the south, which is, who is it? Ptolemy the first Soter. Now, these are all Greek names. Uh, just a little bit of information about the pride with which they had their names, the arrogance of the kings. The Greek word Soter means savior. Soteria means salvation. That's how you get the word soteriology, doctrine of salvation. So Soter, Ptolemy the one Soter, so he called himself the savior. Uh, you have Antiochus the first Soter. Look at this. Antiochus the second, Theos. Theos is God. Magnus, you can guess. Magnanimous, magnificent. Uh, Epiphanes means the illustrious one or the glorious one. So look at the names of all these kings. That is the arrogance they wielded. Uh, that is the arrogance they wielded against God's people as well. So the king of the south which is Ptolemy I, Soter, as he called himself, the ruler of Egypt. Uh, he was a general under Alexander, and he conquered this particular kingdom. He wanted this particular kingdom. And one of his commanders was this man, Seleucus I. So this man was ruling Egypt, and this man, Seleucus I, was actually a general under him. And he left this man and went to the northern kingdom, Seleucid Empire. What does the verse say here? One of his commanders shall be stronger then and shall rule with a great authority. So Seleucus I, he went to this particular empire and he expanded his empire even to Babylonia and all this and became much bigger than the Ptolemaic Empire. His empire, his kingdom included Babylonia, Syria and Media and the largest of all divisions in the Greek empires. And so from now on, 
conflicts would happen between this empire and this empire as well. Let's go forward. Look at verse 6. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up and her attendants who fathered her and who supported her in those times. These are the six wars that were fought between the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. By the way, this is the Ptolemaic Empire, this is Syria, the Seleucid Empire, and uh, look at the wars and follow along one by one, please. So now we are talking about 285 BC when Ptolemy I died. This man died, and the war continued under his son Ptolemy II. By the way, let me just give you a bit of information about this man. Ptolemy II was the one who paid for the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, to be translated into Greek, and that is called the Septuagint. So this man was responsible for it, and this man was very favorable to the Jews. He's the one who paid the money for the translation as well, asking 70 people, the Septuagint, 70 people to translate that into Greek, uh, the, Greek New, uh, the Greek Old Testament. So... This man, uh, Ptolemy II, made a treaty of peace with the Seleucid ruler, Antiochus II Theos, this man actually. And it is this alliance that verse 6 is talking about here. What is the alliance? There was a woman by the name of Bernice who was Ptolemy II's daughter. And his daughter was given in marriage to this man, Antiochus II, just to have a kind of a truce, a kind of a, of a, of a an alliance, so that there would be no wars anymore. But the fact of the matter is, this man was already married to Laodice. And Laodice is the name from where you get the, the name of the town Laodicea in, in Asia Minor. That is the same city to which uh, a letter is written right in the book of Revelation, this church at Laodicea. So that's the name. And by the way, this Antiochus is the name from where you get the word Antioch, the town of Antioch. There are two Antiochs in the Bible, Syrian Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. You see that more in the book of Acts. So his is the name that is responsible for that. So he was married to Laodice. Bernice, uh, so Laodice gets angry about it, and she murders this man, Bernice, and their offspring as well. You see that in verse 6? But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants, uh, he who fathered her, and he who supported in those times. She gets killed, and all of them are killed. Laodice is there. This man is killed as well. Look, look at verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. Verse 7 refers to Bernice's brother, who is Ptolemy III. Ptolemy III succeeded his father, and in retaliation for his sister's murder, Bernice, he goes and he wars against Seleucus III. Verse 8, he shall also carry off to Egypt their gods and their metal images, and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. And the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. 
So Ptolemy, he seized all of the gods and other valuables, and he returned to Egypt the treasures, including the sacred idols and all of that, that were carried away by the king of Persia, who was Cambyses. And apparently, there was one more attempt at invasion, but we don't find that in history, but the Bible here talks about it. Verse 10, we go forward. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. So now we come to Seleucus III, who is not mentioned here, and succeeding him was a man by the name of Antiochus III, who was the king of Syria. Seleucus III was murdered after a very brief reign, but this man, Antiochus III, came to power, and he was called Antiochus III the Great. Because of his great military prowess, he went and conquered uh, most of the then-known land, and he campaigned in Phoenicia and Palestine as well. He conquered most of Israel. That's what is written here, as far as the king of the south's fortress. Verse 11. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, and it shall be given into his hand. So the rest of the verses here, they talk about the fightings that go on between both the kings and the kingdoms, and finally you have this man coming on the scene, which, uh, which we talked about from verses 21 to 35. And this man is called Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the prefigure of the Antichrist who is to come later on. He's the one who goes and desecrates the temple. He's the one who goes and sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple and completely desecrated the temple. And uh, this is the one that we'll talk about in our next sermon. But uh, since we don't have time, I'm just moving forward uh, to the application of the particular passage that we're studying here. So we saw that Israel would become enmeshed in the conflict between the north and the south. So the question that I want to ask myself, and I want to ask all of you is, where has the Lord placed you today? Where has the Lord placed you today? He may have placed you, or some of you, in the midst of a conflict. He may have placed some of you in tough places, where you have people surrounded and where you have people troubling you who are surrounding you. Let me mention some things from the book of Peter here. Peter, in the book of First Peter, he describes how God often displays the faith of a Christian. How does God display the faith of a Christian? Peter tells us that when we are distressed with various trials, we have an opportunity to give the proof or the evidence of our faith. When we are distressed by various trials, we have the opportunity to give proof or the evidence of our faith. In fact, Peter writes that we should not be surprised by the fiery ordeals that come our way, as though they are something surprising to us, as though there is something abnormal to the Christian life. He says, no, that is something very ordinary to the Christian life. So if you'd allow me to put Peter's words in ordinary language, I would say this, at times, God delights to put us in situations where our faith is challenged through circumstances so that watching us, people will have the opportunity to know that we trust in God and we serve the living God. We are often put in circumstances 
so that people surrounding us would see our experience and our response to the situation and find that we serve the living God and have a proof or evidence that we serve the living God. In fact, Peter even goes on to say in chapter 3 that often what non-Christians perceive and ask about when they watch a Christian living out his faith is how does this Christian have such a hope in a situation like this? How does this Christian have a hope like this in such a dire situation, in such a gruesome situation? So they ask the question, how do you have peace in troubled times? How are you able to hold up in such distressful times? And this is a ministry in real sense. This is a ministry in real sense. I don't know where you are today this morning as you're listening. You probably are in a situation where your faith is being tested where your faith is being challenged. But may I say this, God puts you in circumstances that are not comfortable so that you can have a ministry of giving proof or the evidence for your faith that otherwise cannot happen, that otherwise would never come about. In fact, C.H. Spurgeon once said this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Where has the Lord placed you today or this morning? I had to cut a lot. There's a lot of history, but I'm, I'm sure you're grateful for that. It was bare, dry bones history, but it's very, very interesting if you have the time to go step by step. So what's the point of this morning's sermon? The whole sermon basically says this, that the sovereign Lord ordains everything to the smallest detail for his good, and for our glory, for, for, our, for our good and for his glory. The, the sovereign Lord ordains everything to the smallest detail for our good and for his glory. All circumstances in time are the outworking of God's plan which he decreed in eternity. C.H. Spurgeon said this, and I'll finish with this quote. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, that sovereignty will sanctify them all. There is nothing for which the children ought to more earnestly contend to than the doctrine of their master over all creation. The kingship of God over all the work of his hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon the throne. For it is God upon the throne whom we must trust. For it is God upon the throne whom we must trust. Now we just talked about the sovereignty of God throughout this sermon and the passage has been about that. He orders nations. He moves nations uh, according to his own purposes. In fact, uh, Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart at the hand of the Lord is like a river of waters, and he turns it wherever he wishes. Would you trust your life to the sovereign God? Would you trust your marriage to the sovereign God? Would you trust your children to the sovereign God? Would you trust your career to the sovereign God? Because he is completely sovereign, and we must realize at least this thing from this passage, that he is God, and we are not. He is in control, and we must trust him. Let's pray. Thank you for your patience.
Father God, we want to thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And thank you for this passage that has several hundred prophecies that were fulfilled to a T. We realize that in your word. And we also realize that you are a God who ordains things in your sovereignty to the smallest detail. You are sovereign over everything. You are sovereign over the whole affairs of the world. You are sovereign over everything in our lives. And what a matter of comfort that is. Because nothing is out of control. Nothing is out of your control. Father, help each one of us to rest in that doctrine. To take comfort from the fact that you sit on the throne. And you're God and you're in control. And we are not in control of our lives. Thank you for speaking to us from your word. This particular doctrine or this particular statement about your attribute that you're sovereign over our lives. And we want to thank you and we want to trust you for your sovereignty. Father, we submit the rest of the activities of today into your hands. We pray, O Lord, that your hand of favor may rest upon each one of them as we try to give you glory and the honor in all that we do. In Jesus' name.